Let's open our Bibles to Acts 19, verses 1, or sorry, 11 through 20. Acts 19, 11 through 20. And uh, this is the third story in a little trilogy of stories in uh, Acts 18 and 19. And I want to remind you of the theme that is going to be sort of woven through this trilogy of stories. Um, In each story, uh, people are confused. There's some ignorance about who God is and what it means to be a follower of God, a believer. And so um, with each of these stories, I think it's fair to say that the um, seriousness of the error increases. And so begins with a, a fairly... Um, well, an important matter, but, but one that um, w- wasn't sinister in its nature. Um, and so, for example, the, the first story was where Apollos was preaching the gospel, and he needed some refining. He was excited, um, a gifted minister, um, but Priscilla and Aquila had to come to him to, to refine him, to, to shape and mold him. It didn't seem as though Apollos was teaching what was outrightly false, but, but needed to to do better, <laughs> um, needed some, some improvement in that regard. And so he was confused in, uh, in his approach to ministry and was blessed by God through Priscilla and Aquila who helped him. Then the, the following story was where the believers in Ephesus, some of them were baptized, but they didn't really know what it meant to follow Jesus. They had been baptized into John's baptism, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's good. But hadn't really heard the message of Christ clearly enough yet and didn't know yet completely about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this is a, a, a greater issue, it seems, than what Apollos was, um, was confused about. And thankfully, the Lord sends Paul there to to teach them about Christ, to baptize them into Christ, and uh, they received the Holy Spirit. And so in today's story, we find a more flagrant form of ignorance, and um, we'll find people just outrightly pretending to be following Christ um, and really not doing so at all, and we'll see that the the consequence is, is pretty serious for them. And so having already prayed, let's, let's pick up the story in Acts 19, verse 11. And uh, by the way, before I read, um, there are occasions in the Bible that I do think a little chuckle, a little laughter is permitted. And I think actually this story has one of those occasions. And so don't feel bad if something strikes you as a little bit funny, um, because I think that one of the, there's a detail here that uh, is meant to be heard that way. So... Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became 
known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of the books and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story this evening shows a contrast, a contrast between what it looks like to pretend to be a follower of Jesus and what it looks like to truly follow Christ. There's really two halves to the story, and that'll form the two halves of my message this evening. So firstly, we find the seven sons of Sceva, and we see this slightly comedic story, although also a very serious story in some sense as well, serving as a warning, a cautionary tale of imitating um, a, a follower of Jesus and getting involved in ministry. And, of course, this leads down a path uh, that, that is physically even dangerous to these seven men. And then right after that, we find the, the legitimate conversion stories of people who are living in Ephesus and what that really looks like as well. And we'll see the contrast between the two um, groups of people. So, my question for, for each of you as I preach has more to do with what kind of conversion are you displaying? What kind of conversion has happened in your own life? Is it the imitation kind or the real kind? And I'm not asking this morning so much if you're going to heaven or not. I'm not asking so much about if you know the facts of the Christian faith, you know, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ. This text, and I think really the entire book of Acts, prompts me to ask, what kind of faith do you really have? Is it, is it genuine? Is it heartfelt? Is it spiritual in nature and origin? Or is it an imitation? And so we start with the negative example. The seven sons of Sceva demonstrate for us a false conversion. What they say sounds relatively good. In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command to you, come out. It says they are going around performing exorcism. And so they're talking about Jesus. That's a good start. And, and on top of that, they're trying to do some good things. They're trying to help people. They're casting out demons. This is a noble undertaking. And it seems like they're going about it in a good way, trying to do it in Jesus' name. But when the going gets tough, their faith is exposed as illegitimate. They literally get into a fight in the story. Seven sons against one man. Ephesian cage match happens in this this uh, house. <laughs> and so we heard how it ended. Seven versus one, you would assume that's going to go a certain way, but the seven men leave the house broken, battered, even naked, it says. And the NIV, I like how it puts them, how it puts the scenario. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And that's the last we hear about them. 
the last that we hear of their story. These seven brothers were imitating Paul instead of truly becoming like Paul in that they were born again like him. They did this because they wanted to do the same exciting kinds of things that Paul was doing. It's possible that they had innocent motives, but but what they still did was wrong and they, they were exposed as false teachers. What would happen if I imitated a player on the 49ers? If I convinced some people I belong on that field, I'm going to go give it a try. I'm going to get in there. I want to be the kick returner, okay? And the first response that that you likely have in thinking of that is, Pastor Mark, no one would believe that for a second because you're a scrawny, um, 5'10", 41-year-old man. But maybe let's get on that, beyond that, for the sake of illustration. At what point would it become most obvious that I am not really a 49ers player in the game, right? In the game, it would be very evident, you know, where there is violent collisions and people speeding around the field with the speed that I certainly don't have. So to most football fans... Um, I might be able to convince them with some of the things that I say that I know a lot about football because I do actually know a lot about football and uh, defensive schemes and, and so forth. And so to, to somebody with a marginal knowledge of football, you know, I'm imagining we're going to Europe in a little while. Maybe I could go around Europe convincing people that I'm on the 49ers because they don't know anything about American football. They don't know who the players on the 49ers are. I'm not going to try this, by the way. I'm having a little fun tonight. Um, But, uh, you know, they don't know who I am from Adam. And there's a lot of players, 53-man roster on a football team. And so perhaps I could convince them I'm like the kicker or, you know, one of the special teams guys. And I could maybe talk a good game and try to convince some people that, that I really am on the team. But when I get on the field, it would be obvious. And so this is where we could think of the same thing happening to me as what happened to the seven sons of Sceva, that I would receive such a beating that it would be obvious I'm not a member of the team. I'm not meant to be out there. Imposters are exposed when the going gets tough. Imposters are exposed in the game, in ministry. Jesus said exactly that. He said, you'll know a bad shepherd when there's danger and the bad shepherd is out, leaves. He doesn't care for the flock. He's like a hired hand. So at the first sight of danger, he's gone. But the good shepherd, he said, is is the one who remains and even lays down his life for his sheep. So the principle does not just apply to leaders like shepherds, good shepherds, and bad shepherds, but I think we can relate it to faith in general. In the game, when there's suffering, when there's difficulty, when there is opposition, is your faith proved genuine as you go to the Lord, rely on him, as we thought of this morning, moving from strength to strength on our way to Zion? Or is it revealed there that you're trusting ultimately in yourself? When you go through a hard time, do you lean into God or do you lean away from God? 
When you're facing sin in your life, do you run towards God or do you try to fight that sin in your own power, with your own scheme, with your own plan? Individual moments of failure in these situations shouldn't call our entire salvation into question. That's not my intention this evening is to cause you to doubt if you're really born again. But if the default response to to tension and opposition and conflict or change is to fight with your own power, then you have a faith problem. You need to rely on Christ. None of us wants to be exposed like the seven sons of Sceva were exposed. And so you have a choice to make today. Either you can go to God and seek a genuine conversion and seek to grow in your reliance on God, being filled with the Spirit of Christ, or you can check out. And I think sometimes people recognize that they're not truly believers or they're not strong in the Lord, and so they just don't get on the field. They don't do ministry. They don't go care for the poor because their heart is filled with hatred for the poor. <laughs> they don't go and, and teach a class or try to, to get into um, learning something as a Christian because they would know that, that really deep down they just don't care about knowing the truth about God or communicating the truth well. And so sometimes people would say, well, I'm just not going to choose either option. I've I don't really want to get in the game because maybe they would recognize I'm not very strong in faith. Um, But neither do they want to just completely check out and so they just kind of keep a low profile. The Seven Sons of Sceva story is not calling us to back away from ministry that is difficult where there's opposition and spiritually wild things happening at times. But it's calling us to to be born again and to get in there. To get in the game, you might say. So again, using the 49ers analogy, we're called to actually become a player. To actually be a follower of Jesus. The first option of of really following leads to salvation. The second option of kind of backing away leads to really a life of aimlessness and uh, a, a sense of Uh, Not being completely in or not being completely out, just a stagnation that, again, we talked about this morning as well. So, for the evidence of genuine conversion, we look also to the second half of the story. The people of Ephesus indicated that their conversion was true. And you could go verse by verse just looking for some of the markers of a true conversion. And the end of verse 17, we find, uh, starting there, uh, several signs of real Christian transformation. Firstly, they hold the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor as opposed to just being utilized for personal gain, like they want to do some exciting things, so they're going to talk about Jesus like the seven sons of Sceva. They hold his name in high honor. And so we could say when there's a fight, they turn to Jesus. When there is a difficulty, um, even something like Um, a demonic um, manifestation in some way. The Christian would say, would first of all not be afraid, but would say, Jesus can solve this. Jesus can take care of it. Only Jesus can help us with this problem. Right in, in verse 18 as well, many who believed came and openly confessed what they had done. And so there's personal repentance when a genuine conversion occurs. 
And so we could ask, just looking at that, that verse, do you confess your sin before God? Do you confess your sin also to other people? And I think that I'll go out on a limb, and this isn't in my notes, but I'll, I think that this is one of the struggles in the history of the Christian Reformed Church that people can't talk about. I sinned, would you forgive me? And somebody would coming to you saying that, you would say, Christ has forgiven me, so how could I not forgive you? Just really saying those things in marriage relationships with other people to openly talk about repentance and forgiveness. I've known many, many people in the Christian Reformed Church who I could never imagine repenting like that. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I messed up. I sinned against you. I've known many people who I cannot imagine saying those kinds of things. But one of the marks of genuine conversion, many people who believed came and openly confessed what they had done. There it is. A genuine conversion is personal, humble repentance. That's a marker of true faith in God. And it's not just a marker of faith, it's really an instruction. It's an implied command as well to, to live that way and to do that. A true Christian is known for repentance far more than for their ability to to do ministry things like the seven sons of Sceva. That perhaps could come from a life of repentance and a real conversion. But that's down the road. It, It begins with humility before God. And thirdly, we can find another sign of, of true conversion, that their devotion to Christ costs them something. And for them, it was um, the, these, these books with magic spells in them. Becoming a Christian requires them to burn their books that they relied on for this sort of dark spirituality. Ephesus was known at the time as a hotbed for this kind of of pagan ritual and this type of demonic spirituality. There was a temple in Ephesus with some strange inscriptions that supposedly held power in them. And so um, people would would come to that place because it was a dark, spiritually dark place, and they would sort of delight in that, you might say. Uh, I would guess that if if any of us have have traveled, um, we've experienced places like that that have a, a sort of a dark feeling to them. Uh, as part of my seminary education, we actually attended worship at uh, a mosque. And uh, just sitting in the back of that mosque during a, uh, a Friday worship service just felt very heavy to me spiritually. I've heard from my brother-in-law who went to India as well of visiting the Ganges River and going to various Sikh temples. And Randy and Don, with all your travels, can uh, attest to this as well, of just feeling the, the dark heaviness of being in those places where uh, pagan imitation gods are being worshipped. That was Ephesus. And so people would flock to this place because it seemed like there was some kind of spiritual forces at work there. And the people who lived there could actually make a pretty big living, partnering with demonic forces to tell the future perhaps or to perform miraculous signs. And so these Christians have a lot to let go of 
as they um, become believers. It, it's really going to cost them. Uh, as Pastor Zach mentioned in last Sunday evening sermon, there's a, a sacrificial element to following Jesus. And we even have the dollar amount that it cost them in this passage. 50,000 silver coins, also called 50,000 drachmas. Now, people would generally receive a drachma for a day's work. 50,000 days' works. Days of work. 137 years of work. Burned. Sacrificed. Given away. And they didn't profit from these things. You know, I think that sometimes it could be the temptation of somebody to say, well, I'm not a Christian anymore, so I'll sell all that stuff away. And um, they didn't do that. They burned it all, got rid of it. And you can really see an example of a true conversion if somebody can make a complete sacrifice in that way. I remember uh, being in England hearing stories of when the Puritans um, went into the palaces in the 17th century and they were fighting against uh, the king and, and his, his excess, his wealth, all of the gold and all of the things that he had built up and instead of taking it for themselves, they burned it all. And even when you go to England today, you would see there's no crown jewels from before this, the 17th century because it was destroyed. That shows integrity in the mission of those those Puritan soldiers. And so hopefully we would do the same as well. In essence, these people were saying, my God demands my whole life and nothing from the old self can remain. Not even the money that I would earn from getting rid of the books would be uh, legitimate for me to keep. So a fourth effect of their, um, their conversion is that their, their faith is contagious. So they hold Jesus' name in high honor. They, um, they, they personally repent. Their devotion costs them something. And then the response is church growth, spiritual growth, not just in themselves but in the people around them. And we can say that while it isn't the most important manifestation of a genuine Christian faith, church growth will happen where God's people are living in faith and in purity. And so perhaps not by the explosive growth that we see often in the book of Acts, but hopefully over time a genuine church will be a place where people who are hungry, who are sinning, who need a new start, can come in and find Jesus. So we should ask based on that, um, that detail, do people around you want to be Christian because they see how you live? That's a sign of a genuine conversion. That people would say, I want that joy. I want that peace in my life. Relating, or um, we could contrast that to the seven sons of Sceva. Who wants to be like them? These men who were revealed as imposters who got beat up. But uh, relating this to your life, we could ask, what do your kids, what do your friends, what do your family members learn about faith in Christ when they see you going through a hard time? When they see you experiencing something difficult, are you leaning towards the Lord or are you trusting in yourself and just getting beat up? If you lean on him, you, you grow in faith, you grow in grace. 
if you are secure through the storm because of your life is built on Christ, people will want what you have. But if your family endures a tragedy and you just get beat up, you just get exposed, you get kicked to the curb, no one wants that. Not your kids, not your friends, not your coworkers. No one will want what you have. So, finally, a true conversion will make you an unmistakable ally of Jesus. The demon-possessed man had this great, great line, one of the great lines of the book of Acts. I know Jesus. I've heard of Paul. But who are you? Since Jesus' resurrection, word has been spreading throughout demonic circles that Jesus is big trouble for them. Since Jesus' ministry, that certainly was also the case. And then Paul certainly also would have been known as someone that they should fear because he would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that their work in these places was going to be undone by the gospel message that Paul was preaching. And you know they would say the same about Stephen and Peter and Philip and the other heroes of the early church. They would know these men as people who were filled with the power of God. That was right at the beginning of the book of Acts, that Jesus would give them power so that they would share the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They would, these demons would have known names of great women like Dorcas and Lydia and Priscilla. And then in our story, the demon says, we know them. They're real believers. They're really born again. But who are you? And in, in doing so, they're sort of taunting, I think, these seven sons of Sceva. And it's, in essence, they're saying, what could you do against us? Natural, weak people. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian who is really engaged in ministry, if you're helping people through hard times, if you are raising children in the way of Christ, if you are representing Jesus in your workplace, you can know that the forces of evil are on guard against you. They know who you are. They know that you're working against them. They know you're filled with Christ's spirit within you. And so when you go up against some evil thing in the world, you know they can't win. Because remember the passage, um, I believe it's from 1 John, reminds us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So, on the other hand, there are those who are uncertain about their faith in Christ and those who are uncertain if, if they're really been changed, been born again, and it's, it's those people who could be in trouble when there is evil happening, when there is a test uh, happening in front of them. I hear conversations sometimes where people would say, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're a Christian. I think they believe the right things. And that's not a good sign. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, what would happen if I was pretty sure that I was the 49ers kickoff returner. It would be very quickly exposed that I'm not. What would happen if I tried every once in a while to be an NFL player? It would never go well. I would fail every time. Or I could just wear the uniform and never actually do ministry, never actually play the game. As long as I wear the uniform and I don't get too involved, 
maybe people couldn't actually tell if I wasn't a real player. But this evening, I want you to stop guessing about yourself, to commit to Christ, to say, I'm a Christian through and through. (laughs) There's going to be no doubt in my mind, and I'm going to leave no doubt in the minds of other people. And so that's the question I think this passage implies for us. Are you a Christian? Obviously, absolutely, zealously, passionately following Jesus. One day, it won't be a demon asking, who are you? It will be God. Who are you? Who are you? And I hope your answer would include the name of Jesus right away in the first sentence. I am a new creation because of your work, Lord, through Jesus in my life. Where you can say, I am a sinner who's been saved through Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, set apart by God to live a life that is not ruled by sin, but that is pleasing to my Creator. So, it's my role as a minister to to describe a Christian so that you can be assured if you are truly born again and you can be challenged if you are not. Some of you might not be. And I would encourage you to turn to him, to be born again. Many of you, I know, are in Christ. I see your Christian life, I have no doubt. Certainly it isn't my job to evaluate those kinds of things, but I can say with great assurance that I see the Spirit of God powerfully at work in our church, in your lives. Realize that truth today, that you're living in his power, not yours, his power. That's the way to grow a church. That's the way to grow in your faith. That's the simple instruction of the whole Bible. Know who you are. Know whose you are. Know who you belong to. I know that the demons would say of Ammon Valley, I know Jesus' church. We know Paul's churches. And they would say, well, maybe whose church is Ammon Valley, CRC? I think and I believe that they would say this church belongs to Christ. The spiritual forces around us know this is a part of the true church of the Lord Jesus. You are the people of God. You are his church to the glory and praise of our risen and powerful Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.